Iconic makeup artist. Beauty industry revolutionary. Entrepreneur. Bobby Brown is all these things and so much more. Throughout her career, she has crossed paths with some of the most accomplished people at the top of their field. These conversations are a look into their inspiring lives because everyone has a story. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown. Liz Murray has an incredible story. She certainly didn't have an easy upbringing growing up in the Bronx during the 80s. She grew up in poverty and both of her parents were addicted to drugs. She was frequently absent from school and her family barely had any money for basic needs. During Liz's middle school years, when her family fell apart due to addiction and HIV AIDS, a family friend stepped in to help Liz and encourage her to see that there was a world beyond her neighborhood. She grew up literally taking care of her parents and dealing with things that most of us could not even imagine going through. What I also love about Liz and how I fell in love with Liz is her best-selling book, Breaking Night from Homelessness to Harvard, about how she was living on the streets and somehow managed to apply and got into Harvard and then won a scholarship to pay for Harvard. She wouldn't let her circumstances dictate her future and went from homeless to a Harvard graduate. She has an incredible story, and I'm so happy that she's here to share it today. She is now the co-founder and executive director of The Arthur Project, a New York Times bestseller and traveling keynote speaker. Please welcome Liz Murray. Okay, first I'm going to start this interview with an apology. And I always apologize to you, and you always say it's no big deal. You are like the one person that I should see more, that I want to see more, that I just Uh, never have time, and you know my heart's there. Bobby, I never forget. You don't ever have to explain that to me at all. I know you love me. me. I would hope that we maintain the type of friendship as we have so far for so many years that that we can pick up where we left off. Or have you speak to my team to see you? Well, I wasn't going to put it in those terms, but (laughs) you can sort of always Uh, pick up where we left off. Yeah. Yeah, anytime. Aw. Well, I don't even know where to start, but this morning I was telling Michelle how excited I was to see you, and I said, she said, how did you meet her? You know, and and she said, I started reading some of the things, and I said, honestly, I read an article in the New York Post years ago, and I remember the New York Post article was, um, it was a, your story, and you talked about a woman that did your laundry, because all she had was change, and I tore out the New York Post, mm-hmm. and I somehow found you and asked you to be in my book, Pretty Powerful. Yeah. And uh, that was many years ago. I know the article you're referring to. And it's funny what stands out differently to different people, right? So some people will read a story like, wait, you went from homeless to Harvard, right? And you get all this attention from people for a number of different things. And I find it that it speaks to sort of where you come from, Bobby, that what stood out to you was the ordinary act of kindness, the ordinary, the choice that any person could make. And just for context, anyone listening, the the deal was, right? Everyone I, listening. Right, everyone, <laughs> everyone listening. <laughs> if, if you're you not can, listening now, stop, call yeah. your friends, tell them yes, to listen. If you, it's if worth you it. If you hear us, we're talking to you. Uh, <laughs> I, I really love that you highlight that right away because I don't know how other people feel when they're in low stages of their lives, but I have been in the darkest places and I remember what it would feel like to watch television and see people doing all these incredibly big things and feel like I could never really be a part of things, right? And then through this experience where I had been homeless, which you so beautifully identified this encounter with a loving individual who knew, okay, this girl's on the streets, she applied to Harvard, how can I help? She had no money, she had six children, she was broke, and 
you know what, I can I can do this woman's laundry. And she showed up at my high school. Liz, do you need help with laundry? And she didn't live around here, correct? No, she lived in Jersey and she oh, drove she in okay. and she opened up her car and she had two empty plastic laundry bins. And she said, I can't do much, but I can do that. Right. And and I do believe that it's encounters of that nature, whether it's through that kind of giving and that sense of community or in other places where we see that the, if I do what I have with where I am, there's something incredibly powerful about that. And, you know, and we're going to go into the whole story and all these like crazy questions because sure. it's, you know, besides loving you, I love the book and, and the book, you know, Thank called you. Breaking Night from Homelessness to Harvard. When I used to, you know, have my company, I made every single person read the book and I had painted in giant letters. I'm sure they painted over it. Your quote that said, so what, comma, now what? Right. I'm sure your employees loved me. Yeah. Uh, that's, well, you know, <laughs> I walked in. And, but, but it was Murray. Yeah. No, but honestly, I, it's what I believe. It's like, okay, mm. you just, especially being an entrepreneur, it's a skill entrepreneurs have. You have to just figure it out and you have right. to think quickly. It's all, so for me, I, during my journey, right, I, and we can talk in any amount of detail you want, short or long, but broad strokes, you know, I grew up with parents who were addicted to drugs. So let's, let's right? start there. Who, so you were born sure. where? Born in the Bronx. The That's oldest? Right. Uh, so my sister second? is two and a half years older than me. Lisa and I were born in the Boogie Down Bronx and <laughs> raised there in a very special time when I now understand that just sort of nationally what was occurring, we had a huge drug epidemic. Right before that, we had the disco dancing era. And my parents, I like to explain to people, they sort of lived a disco dancing lifestyle that then turned to drug addiction. And we grew up in the aftermath of what happened when the party was over. And what did your parents do before they had you guys, like when so, they were not doing drugs? Sure. So my, so my mother, she at age 13, she left home and became a homeless youth. She grew up in severe physical and sexual abuse, was legally blind and schizophrenic. And Is this in your book? I don't think so. Bits of your it. Yeah. yeah. The, my mother's background. Okay. Sure. Like she she came out of unimaginable adversity. And she And she was beautiful. Yes, very beautiful. I mean, like she looked like a model. And yes. I, and right, which you have to think, a young girl leaving home at age thirteen with those striking looks living in the street, what might she have encountered? So she was trafficked legally blind and living in the streets to escape physical and sexual abuse at home. So by the time my dad met her when she was in her early 20s, she had already lived quite a life. And my father, on the opposite end of things, had grown up you know, middle class in on Long Island, New York, and his mother had fought really hard to get him a very solid education. She kept two jobs. He went to Catholic school. She was sort of setting him up on a different trajectory, which had gone awry. And when he met my mother, they were at a party you know, one of those disco dancing mm -hmm. parties and they were, he was in fact dealing drugs by that time and that's how they met. And then how soon after that did they get married? So they were never legally married. Okay, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah that's because yeah. my dad had been previously married. Right. Um, but you know, they, well, immediately their lives sort of took on these parallel trajectories, right? Because or a tr parallel trajectory because they met and my father was, he had been a highly educated, he was in graduate school at, at NYU when he became severely addicted to drugs. And initially, he started out by selling pills because graduate students, you know, and they'll they'll buy, he used to call them uh, tranquilizers that were so powerful they could knock out a horse, $15 a pill in the 70s. So he's selling them to the tune of a few thousand a week and running an illegal scam at pharmacies to get more pills and traveling around the city sort of burning up those those resources and met my mother. And then she became involved in what he was doing. And in a little tiny tenement apartment in Greenwich Village, they were living 
a very, uh, as I said, 70s and, and strange. They had, I look at pictures of them and they had, they were decked out in full 70s gear. My dad had these mutton chop sideburns. They had, uh, you know, they had a, a, you know, boa constrictor in their apartment, uh, gold necklaces, like cocaine across the table. Well, this was, is your next book. They were, well, the I'm prelude. writing another yeah. book right now. Okay. It's a little different than that. Yeah. But it, so they, they lived that lifestyle. And then, of course, it caught up with them. Right. Right. Because how long can you do that before something happens? And then when you were born, they were full on doing drugs. Yeah. So when I was born, my father, it caught up with them. And my father had been incarcerated. So my sister had been born first and they had this baby in this very precarious situation. My mother's mental illness started to flare up and she was having bouts of schizophrenia that were very serious. My father was arrested. And when I was born, my mother used heroin throughout her pregnancy. And my father was incarcerated for the first three years of my life. And, and you know, you speak this and people that usually listen, they're just sitting there with their mouths open. And we're going to talk about both things. We're going to finish your story. But what always gets me is how how I don't want to say unaffected you are by it, but how you just put everything into perspective in such a positive way. Well, I, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for the way in which we interpret obstacles in people's lives, right? So very often, and I work with youth, right? I'm involved. I have a nonprofit. I work with youth. And I hear people Called speak, the Arthur Project. Called which the Arthur Project. We will, you can that Google up. it now, <laughs> if, but yes. we will talk about it later. Yeah, for sure. And, and I only mention that to say that I'm sitting in the middle of many conversations about youth. And what I find is that whether I'm with funders, donors, volunteers, whom, like the general public, okay, when we speak about adversity in the life of a child, we tend to conflate that adversity with the child's identity. We start to, they are, they're not in a precarious situation. They are precarious, right? They're not living in an underserved, at-risk situation. They are at risk. And we start to make it who they are. But, and, but you talk about your parents with such love I mean, talk about what it was like for you as growing up with parents. Well, so this is what I mean, right? It's that the good and the bad happen side by side. I may live in a community where there's not a ton of resources and yeah, there's crime and there's a bunch of stuff, but that's that's to talk totally in terms of deficit. What is the good that is there? Let's talk about that. I had parents who were highly flawed and we could spend quite a bit of time documenting that and it would be accurate. It is also accurate to say that people can't give you what they don't have. And my mother was very loving. She tucked me in at night and kissed every part of my face and sang to me and told me stories. And when I walked in the room and my mother looked at me, you would think A-list celebrity entered the room. Her eyes would light up. And my dad, my dad would take me, you know, he had had that grad school experience. He almost had another life. It did not pan out. So he had this sense of, I've got to expose you to reading. And he took me to the library every Saturday of my childhood. And we checked out stacks of books that we never returned. And, you know, had a few aliases at the New York Public Library. But, you know, you add all of this up and this sense of relationship and love. We didn't have money. We didn't have much. We had each other. And I never really lived in this sense that something terrible was being done to me by their addiction. I knew it was terrible. I was devastated, but I thought it was something terrible happening to all of us. And that distinction is everything because if people can't give you what they don't have, you can release the need to find the sense of blaming people, assuming the worst from them. I'm going to instead go ahead and assume that if they could have done better, they would have done better. Who has a baby, holds the baby in their arms and thinks, I can't wait to mess you up, right? Like, who does that? Right. <laughs> I can't say it doesn't exist, but that is not my experience. My experience was love. So, so growing up, your parents were dysfunctional but functional. 
until a certain point, until yes. it just got to the end. Absolutely. So, I mean, you can't drug addiction if you don't treat it. it. It doesn't get better, but what people don't realize is that it also doesn't maintain, it doesn't stay the same. There is a deterioration. And here we are talking about late 80s, early 90s, intravenous drug use in, in group settings in the Bronx. So it doesn't take too long to figure out what happens. They contract HIV. And this is before- But they also had to pay rent and they had yeah. to feed you. So sure. how did they do that? So my mother being legally blind and schizophrenic, and she was hospitalized like three or four months a year my entire childhood in a psychiatric ward, she qualified for disability. So we got disability checks from her and some form of welfare. And you know those checks were what they were for a time and they managed just enough, right? Our, our daily life cycle was just sort of, we lived for the check that came on the first of the month and we all just had this unrealistic sense of that being enough. And it was for a few weeks. And then every month we lived on this cycle of the moment we ran out and they ran out of drugs, we ran out of money, we definitely ran out of food. And then it became this question of, gee, what are we gonna do until the next one? And I think when we think about long-term impact for people, it's very powerful to grow up in a household where you'll hear conversations like, what are we eating today? Are we not eating today? The lights have gone out. Can we afford the electricity or are we buying candles? I believe people, will grow into the conversations that you create around them. It's very powerful how you speak about expectations. And it doesn't just go to your head, it goes to like sort of a marriage between your head and your heart. It affects you on the level of belief. And I grew up in a conversation of survival and therefore everything was seen through that framework. You don't plan for the future. You don't expect to thrive, you get through right now. And that mentality is what spun out when they finally contracted HIV when we'd gone through years of not having enough food in the house, when we ate ice cubes for dinner many times, chapstick, toothpaste, when our neighbors took very good care of us when they could, it comes to a head and it certainly came to a head in our household. I just remember this one of the scenes in the book that I, I have never forgotten where you had to go get your mother from a drug den and yeah. carry her home yeah. and give her a bath and yeah. put her to bed. And how yeah. old were you? Oh, at that time I was an adolescent. She used to drink at this place called Madden's Bar in Bedford Park in the Bronx, and she could be found there any hour of the day. And at that time, she actually so wasn't using intravenous drugs, but she was near the end of her life and was drunk morning to night every day. And then she tried to get home the seven or eight block walk, and we would have to, like, I'd go pick her up. My friends would come, and she would be, I mean, she'd throw up. She'd fall down in the street. We'd, carry, we'd help her walk home. And I knew she was dying, but there was this sense of, you know, you grow up kind of, Part of the survival in the situation is to not be focused on all of the reality that you're living in. Because if you did, it would be too much. So it's it's very adaptive to kind of say, I, I don't want to think about that right now. And I pushed it off, but I held the whole time a deep sense that something was coming. And when did you find yourself homeless? What was so what right led up at that, that time? My mother, you know, and here I am in the Bronx, age 15. I had by then lived in a group home. I had by then lost the apartment we grew up in. My father was in a homeless shelter. We were staying with my mother, a very precarious situation with a man my mother had dated. And she got so sick, she was in the hospital way more than she was ever there. So suddenly I'm in this apartment with this very odd man and it's bad for a number of reasons. And I started to go, and then I didn't wanna to go to the group home because very dangerous things had happened to me there. How do you end up homeless in the United States of America if you're underage? People really don't understand. And I tell people you need two things. And one is that you don't, some, something tells you you cannot trust the system, and that happened. And the other piece is your family comes undone. And then what do you have? So I began sleeping on my friends' couches at the age of 15, friends I'd made in middle school. 
not seeing that you, you know, I'll sleep at Bobby's house, Jamie, Josh, it'll all be fine until one night people, they stop answering their doors. They go, well, my mom said not tonight, right? Maybe tomorrow. And you start to run out. And when that began to happen, I slept in hallways. I slept on the D train. But I always had this sense, oh, tomorrow it'll be okay. I'll sleep at Bobby's. This is just a fluke. And this is where the name of the book comes from, right? In the Bronx, we have a slang term. When you stay up all night until the sun rises, we call that breaking night. And so I would tell my friends, I'm fine. I'm just breaking night. And it had to be for someone to sit me down to say, actually, the word for that is homeless. That is not how I identified my situation at all. And and one of the entrepreneurial moments in the book where, where I always think about is how you figured out the only way for you to get money was to help people put food in the, the, the groceries in their cars. My dad, see, this is where it's such a rich and beautiful thing to think. When Whenever we think of kids growing up in these situations, I want to invite people not just to see all the bad. And I don't mean that from like some PC way. I'm talking about you might be missing something really cool. No matter where a kid is growing up, there is they have a culture, they have skills, there is a beauty in where people come from, period. Where I grew up, I learned a lot of very unconventional and very useful things from my dad and my mom. Someone asked me, well, how'd you know to apply to Harvard and do it the way you did it? And I'll go, well, my parents taught me what I needed to know. And they go, what are you talking about? They were high on drugs. They were dying of AIDS. And I go, well, look a little closer. So I'll tell you how. I grew up with my mother. We were on welfare, right? We had government checks. There's a thing that you, a meeting you have to go to rep repetitively, like ever, over, it's called face-to-face. And somebody, a caseworker, sits across a desk and they decide, do you continue to qualify or not? Anyone on welfare is terrified at that meeting. I grew up in my mother's lap at face-to-face -face meetings and I would watch her, again, legally blind, schizophrenic, limited in a number of ways, depression. And she would work all day on the paperwork and walk into the meeting sweating and shaking. And she put me in her lap and I would watch with, she missed one box, one thing, one piece of paper, caseworker would slam the file nope, next, come back another day. And we would start from scratch. And my mother's devastation. When I was homeless and at some point, and we could talk about how like Harvard occurred, I had this realization that, you know, when I realized that my mother is going to die, I am going to have to figure out if I ever go back to school. I pictured my future and I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll go to college. And I thought, oh, wait, what do people need on that application? And I really thought mm -hmm. about my mother's case caseworker. Mm -hmm. And I thought if everything wasn't perfect, then I wouldn't get my shot. And so I became obsessed with the Harvard application the way that my, you know, someone might approach their case to case, <laughs> face to face meeting, right? Like the, the, the idea that everything had to be in order. I also learned what people now call grit through my mother, right? She was determined. I would see her. She grew up on the streets. No one could tell her no. We went to the deli once and she, someone sold her a gallon of milk. We got home, it was spoiled. And she marched back into that deli. They didn't want to give her, her money. I've never seen anything like it at age eight, the way she took on that man. She was going to get that milk and that money back, right? I had a series of skills. And my dad also taught me how to look around things. So we used to go down in Manhattan. We grew up in the Bronx, right? I grew up in the Bronx. Manhattan was this big deal. And he stereotyped, he said, most people in Manhattan are rich. You know, we're gonna wait till furniture day and then we're gonna walk the sidewalk and look for what people are throwing out. And he taught me, Liz, look for things where nowhere else, no one else looks for them. And he would pick the trash and people would stare at us. And uh, you know, I won't like repeat now here what he said, but you know, a lot of curse words and F this and F them. And he would point me right in the face and go, don't you ever let anyone tell you you can't do something if you want to do it. Now, I'm learning that over a heap of trash right. in the village. 
But later on, when it came to thinking about my life, I would say that those skill sets really served me. And did you live on the streets or mostly at people's homes? So I lived, initially it started just, you know, first phase of youth homelessness is often couch surfing. So that's to say that you have no idea what's about to happen to you. (laughs) And when it wore out that I could stay at other people's houses and it got awkward and I had that sense of just tonight on the subway, just tonight in the park. And also one key thing people don't realize is any building in Manhattan, especially in the Bronx where it's less structured, you can walk to the top of the staircase and before you get to the roof, if the alarm doesn't go off, there's a landing. Who's going to come up there all night? Probably nobody. So I would sleep there and I had a girlfriend with me who also had nowhere to live and we would like kind of laugh and hang out. We'd sleep. When the sun came up in the morning, we kept walking. So it was always a careful balance between where have I not worn out my welcome and can I sleep in this hallway or that place? And when my friend's parents leave for work, maybe Bobby will let me in and no one's home and I can secretly shower, nap, snack and leave. And were you still in school at the time? So at the time I dropped out. So the timeline of it is I went to a group home when I was 13. You know, I got out of that group home determined to never go back into the system for what happened to me there. I thought my parents lost the apartment. My dad is in a homeless shelter. My mother is in the hospital and she was like had 68 T cells left. She was dying. And so I thought that I was, you know, resourced in a great group of friends that I have just sleeping at their houses. And then that situation occurred where it was not so much that I could stay there. So then I started sleeping outside. Then I got in with a boyfriend that was a drug dealer and he was in a gang. And like I was falling into all the stereotypes you hear about, about at-risk youth, big time, right, on steroids. And I would visit my mother in the hospital at the time and not tell her how dire my situation had become. I just loved her so much. You know, I'd go in the hospital. I wanted, you know, when people are sick and they're dying, they have good days and bad days. And I would try to go to the hospital and just give her more good days. And I think that was my secret sense that I had any control over how long she lived, which is now, of course, I see ridiculous, right? But grow up the child of addicts and you think you have more control than you do. And I would help her brush her hair, you know, and clumps of it would come out in my hands. And, you know, and then I just came to the realization that this was going to happen. And she would beg me to go back to school. She didn't know I was sleeping outside. She thought I had a friend to stay with always, but she knew I wasn't in school. And she'd look at me. She, my mother went to the eighth grade. As, as someone who was legally blind without the proper interventions, she could not see the chalkboard. And she would sit in the front of the front row in the classroom. And she had these little binoculars that she'd gotten from the Goodwill store. And she was teased and it didn't work. And the class couldn't go at that pace. And she dropped out. You know, and she would remember that and look at her life and urge me, Lizzie, she called me Lizzie, you know, Lizzie, please, sweetheart, go back to school. And I made a promise to her that I would. And she died before your dad, right? She did. So I had, you know, I was just, I just turned 16. At that time, I was in a motel for a string of weeks with the drug dealer boyfriend because I was making great life choices. And, (laughs) you know, and she died. And I remember having this theme in my head at the time, right? I had all these things I knew I was supposed to do. And I think human beings are like that. See, I worry when people listen to what I'm saying, I think people go, oh my gosh, that's so severe, right? And we can disconnect. But wait, there's, but, a, there's a whole but, amazing side to this story. Right. The story uh, sure. afterwards, which, you know, we're going to get to. So yeah. it's not, Liz, you're a, a miraculous, uh, that's amazing kind, woman. Bobby. I, I, well, I, I think if at every story holds truth for everyone, right? Like if I hear your story or your story or anyone, I'm sure anyone listening to this, you have a story. We have stories. And the question is, can we find ourselves in each other's journeys? And 
in this sense, throughout the whole time I had nowhere to live, I had this voice in the back of my head that actually I think is human universal experience, which mm. is, you know, people can sometimes call it the what if, but I mean this in a very positive sense. You know that voice inside that nags you? No matter what it is you are doing, it always knows what you should be doing, right? <laughs> it's the part of you that dreams and has the capacity to close your eyes and see things as better and different. It just hasn't occurred yet, right? It's like you dream from that. But then life happens. And I think of it like you ever inflate a beach ball and you try to push it underwater and it fights for surface, right? Like it never quite goes away. And that's why I love Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Right. In the sense of, you know, does it sag like a heavy load? Does it explode? We talk about where does it go? You know, and we've seen that in lots of books, like The Buried Life. I love this idea of what mattered to you most. I had that, too. You bet yourself that you walk down the street and anyone sleeping outside who's homeless, they just want a better life. Your homeless neighbor, I want to offer that that's your neighbor, your homeless neighbor, they just want a better life. And so I had that and I pushed it away with this one word <laughs> that I think we all do. And the word is later. I'll go to school later. I'll get a job later. And I'm not proud of it, but, you know, I'll visit my mother later. And she became later, too. And that became the lens through which I dealt with everything. And when she died, I hadn't been there in about a month. We buried her the day after Christmas. I, you know, we didn't have money for a funeral. They donated a pine box. She was buried in this public grave. I took the taxi back from burying her and something snapped open inside of me that I will never fully be able to put in words. But I knew that it was so powerful. I would spend the rest of my life sharing it with people. Like even as I sit here, Bobby, with you right now, like I can feel what it was. It is really something when a realization moves from your head to your heart. And I, you know, it's for, I have a microphone, I have words, it's all I have. I don't have any other medium. How do I give this to people I want so badly? Because I knew that when I felt what I felt, if everyone could have that, they would forgive easily. They would not say later. They would do what's meaningful. They would love differently. When I lost my mother, I had also lost an uncle at the time, Arthur. A, a number of things had happened to me all at once. That period of time changed everything. I'm going to do my best to say what the thing was because it, it's, a, but it's, you know, the powers and the simplest things, right? So you could miss it. But I remember, I'll say it like this. I buried my mom. I went to my friend Bobby's house and I thought I could go back to being the same person and it was impossible. Like the change happened immediately, permanently, and it went just like this. I sat on his couch, 10 or 11 of my amazing friends from the Bronx. And what do we do every day? By the way, we're the gothic crew at the time. Our hair is every color of the rainbow. We have piercings and we're generally angry at nothing, right? And we're activists of nothing. And we're sitting on the couch wasting our lives. We've got dropouts. We've got people who are getting addicted. And I went from burying my mom to like, I don't want to think and feel. I'll go sit on Bobby's couch. That's where you go to not be held accountable for anything. Bobby starts complaining to my friends about his mother burnt the pork chops for dinner the night before. I buried my mom and I was listening to my mother burnt the pork chops from this. His mom's a nurse. If Bobby, if you hear me, I love you. You know, I love you. But like he was talking to my 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 friends. Right. So he's talking about that. And then my friend starts complaining about her teacher. And this one hates his boss. And they're going on and on and on and on. And the only thing I can compare it to is like, but I don't know if you have anyone in your life like this, Bobby, but do you have someone you call and they're just kind of always having a bad day or there's always drama. Sure. And you know it when you see their name on the caller ID. Mm -hmm. And then when you pick up and they just go and you can't stop them. And <laughs> I always tell people, if, if you don't have someone like that, that might be you. You might not realize it. <laughs> I like to tease. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I'm listening to all of that. And I kept picturing my mom in the pine box. And I swear to you, like as I sit here and talk to you, I can feel it. 
I changed like forever because I sat there and I thought like, how dare we? Like, we are so lucky to be healthy. We are alive. You can always ask James, you know, my husband, for those who don't know, he hears me talk about this all the time. I'm like, we're alive? We're alive and we're healthy? Look, I'm broke, but I'm broke in New York City. I'm like a healthy white woman in New York City with public transportation. I'm not in the streets of Calcutta with a disability. I'm, how could I sit here and be this way? And so what unfolded was this bottom line. And the bottom line was essentially that I came, I came to realize, I developed a felt sense that there comes a point in our lives where we would be so much better off <laughs> if we stop counting all the things we don't have, if we choose to be grateful for the things that we do. And I don't mean gratitude like a slogan, because don't even get me started on all those inspirational things that actually depress me for some reason. <laughs> I, I'm really practical and simple. My friend Travis taught me that gratitude is nothing more than realizing that every single thing you have, you could just as easily not have it. And when you get that as a felt sense, you will forgive differently. You will actually solve problems differently because your energy is not focused on what you were entitled to and didn't get. Your energy focuses to, okay, so what, now what, and what do I do about it? And when you come from that place, it is not only the most generative place of living in a sense of possibility, but I promise you, you will be a more loving person in it by every measure. So from sitting on Bobby's couch to yes. going to Harvard, yeah. I mean, I know this. I know the story. I know the dollar you had left and you were starving and you wanted a piece of pizza, but you chose to go on the subway. Did I get that right? Yeah. So you're talking about that moment where, right, like my mom dies. I get like my hair is suddenly on fire. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get up off the couch. <laughs> I had this professor at Harvard, uh, Tal Ben-Shahar, and he told the best, you know, anecdote in class one time. He said, I'm going to do you all. He was talking about personal responsibility. Um, who are the most happiest people in life? People who blame people or people who look within before they look without? No surprise. It's people who look within before they look without. So the way he told that to us one day <laughs> is he came into class and he said, if you ever think anyone can solve all your problems for you, no one is coming. <laughs> and he said, no one will arrive on a white horse. No, and he went to this whole thing. And a student in the front row said, well, professor, I disagree. You know, you came. He said, yes, I came to tell you that no one is coming, right? And I, I think I sat on that couch after my mom died and I'm listening to all my friends like complain. And I love them to this day. And they have heard me complain thoroughly, okay? So these, these are my family to this day. So please don't hear me. In fact, I got annoyed at them listening and then I fixed my attitude really fast. I was like, no, wait, let's do this a different way. I'm lucky to have them. They love me. I love them. I'm lucky to be alive. I'm lucky, right? And so I went looking for a school and I went knocking on all these doors going, okay, well, it's time to go back to school. And my arrogance, I thought that when I was ready, <laughs> the world would be waiting for me. And instead I went knocking. And by then, if you have any educators listening to this, they'll know exactly what I mean when I say over age and under accredited. So you, there's a high risk status you can fall into if you fall a little behind in your education as you get older. I was going to be 17 by the time the next school year started and I should be graduating and I was starting. I had a 45 average. I had like, I was a train wreck. And I think like I had all these clothes on I, that were tattered. I look like an alley cat, okay? And I'm walking from school to school I cannot tell you the courage it takes when you come from that level of society to knock on a door and ask for help. It's a lot. And I, I feel for our kids and anyone in any vulnerable situation, you feel like you're in a storm and you're looking for a port. Please help, right? And so I, I 
experienced a lot of no, 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 no from a lot of people. And then I found one yes. My friends were like, you know, do you have to go to that next interview, Liz? And I, I, they were going to go get some pizza. And I almost didn't try one more time. I tried one more time and I found a school named Humanities Prep. I met a wonderful teacher. I met a wonderful team of teachers who changed my life. They allowed you to go to the school. I would say that in a world of no, they were my one yes. And I say that for a very specific reason. If we all know what it feels like to walk up to another person needing help and to be told no, but not just any kind of no, a kind of no where, I mean, you ever walk up to even a cash register, a person has not even heard what you said and the answer is no. <laughs> the person has essentially become a living and breathing no, right? And usually at the airport, right? Like TSA, like God bless, right? So when you do that to people, it has an impact. And it, if someone's vulnerable, it has a deeper impact. I walked into that school and somehow these teachers had walked through the world in such a way where they could see an alley cat of a you know vagrant like me. And they were my one yes. They had decided to become what I consider a living, breathing, like a yes of a human being toward kids who needed them. And I walked into a school that was all about yes. And I found out only later that the program I walked into was actually created by a radical team of teachers who had been mocked by other teachers for taking on the so-called failures like us. We often behind our backs did not know that a neighboring school called us Failure Academy. Yeah. And, and so, and yeah. so how, you got into the school, you were behind, and then what happened? I walked happened? into a team of teachers who subscribed to the belief that any child can learn. They absolutely, they just knew. So they, they had been, so this small team of teachers, the two that started the school, had been for many years teachers in your typical public school system, one that was by many measures failing at a particular high school in Chelsea in Manhattan. It was overcrowded. And they had been in a series of meetings where the teachers were speaking in cynical terms about children. And there was an idea struck out of cynicism in that room. And they said, I know what to do with all those failures. Put them in the basement. We'll give them a half day program. Ha ha, they're making fun of them. We'll segregate them. Is the school and still there? Yes. It is. So yes, of course. I don't can't say anything today about the current status of who's on that team, right. but this was like the mid 90s, okay? My, who became my English teacher, a mentor to me, someone who I love, my teacher Perry, would tell me many years later that he had been sitting in these meetings and became furious and said, how dare you make fun of them? I challenge you to make a school that meets their needs. How can we change our school? They said, you think you're so much better, why don't you go do it? And like Jerry Maguire, this man put a memo in all these mailboxes, <laughs> who's coming with me? And they gave him like the first and second floor of half a building, which is now called Humanities Preparatory Academy. And- But then how did you, how did well, you get I to Harvard? In, so you gotta think, if you walk, I could have walked into a lot of schools. I had a fire in my belly about like, so what, now what? But if I walked into a no environment, what would have happened to me? I had these wonderful teachers mentor me who believed in me, who when I would pull back, they would say, I think you can do better. And as I said before, people grow into the conversations you create around them. I did not tell them I had nowhere to live. I was too scared about going back to a group home. I hid that. I put a fake address on my application. I got my father from a homeless shelter and said, we were literally rehearsing the address. Dad, I'm putting a fake address you live at. And I would quiz him. And then we went in, he screwed it up, whatever. We got the application. <laughs> I went into this wonderful team of teachers and I was surrounded by the first positive educational experience I'd ever really had in my life, so thoroughly positive. And I'm proud to say that I'm the product of very successful public school system by teachers who refused to give up on people like me. And as a result, I was getting straight A's, hiding my homelessness. I did not tell them. 
I slept at my friends' houses. I slept outside. And then I developed enough friendships where I very often would be on the bottom bunk, like James's bottom mm-hmm. bunk, who's now my husband. Um, my good friend Ava, people took care of me. And there were nights where I slept outside. And when it came time to look at the end, I, you know, here I was, I looked down at my transcripts, 96 average, you know, uh, straight A's, all these great awards coming in. And it was for the first time in my life that I had seen that you could actually, the question of can you change your life? I don't think you can do it alone, but- Was Harvard always on top of your list? No way, no. My teacher took us on a field trip to go to Boston. We had this like top 10 students go to, you know, all, but really top in our school had a lot to do with community service hours and helping others. So because we had this great community mindset, right? And I got to go on this trip and we walked, we did, we were there, like you take high school students to sightsee, okay? We walk around and then of course we walk through Harvard Yard and the idea was to get a picture in front of the statue that should go in the yearbook, that's it. I'm leaving, I look at my teacher and you know, I'd heard of Harvard and I was, you know, what's this? You know, is it really hard to get into? And they're kind of laughing at me and he goes, well, it would be a reach, but it's not impossible. And I applied and what do you write your college essay about? Your life, right, your life. So I I have nowhere to live. Here are my grades. (laughs) I lost my family. Um, I want a better life. (laughs) And I sent it in uh, an essay to them and to the New York Times for their scholarship. I was awarded a scholarship from the New York Times. They printed my life story on the cover of the Metro section. And I was awarded uh, admissions to Harvard. And I found out that the reach of the New York Times I doubt, Bobby, I'd be talking to you right now if that article hadn't been written. I, I, maybe I read about you in the New York Times and not the Post. I'll be much happier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read well, about it in one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I mean, the story is unbelievable. And now you are happily married yes. to yeah. an incredibly beautiful man. A little tired, but incredibly beautiful. And you have two <laughs> gorgeous children. Thank you, Bobby. And you are um, on the speaking circuit. Yeah. 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 I mean... Yeah, it's, it's I'm, amazing. I'm moving into a whole new chapter of my life. I'm writing a new book. Um, I realized that, you know, I went off to Harvard and, you know, my, my book ends and I'm on the stoop and the mailman's walking toward me and I know he has the letter. And at the end of my book, Breaking Night, I reflect on, well, whatever it says, I'll be fine come what may, because it's never been about the circumstance, right? So that's the end of the book. And I initially wrote quite a bit about being at Harvard and how hard that was and the many things that happened, but it was another book. And so I'm, I had a very interesting experience because I became a speaker at the same time that I went to Harvard at the same time that my father was dying of AIDS because he lived till I was 26. And I began to cross the United States hired by people who have great means to speak about the power of the American dream, in a sense, translating poverty, right? But also witnessing the collapse of different aspects of our economy and seeing how complex, how complex it is when people are trying to achieve the American dream. So I'm writing about that in a new book now. Because what has always amazed me about you is you get up in front of these people and, you know, I asked you a lot of questions about the story because it's it's a story that, you know, people that haven't read your book, right. uh, they better. Right. But I also think that, every, and I don't think I know, everything out of your mouth is so positive. Hmm. And just the way you look at the world is so incredible that you you give so much to all the people that hear you. That's kind. And I, it's amazing. So you've got this speaking bureau. Yeah. That you've got one speaking bureau you work with, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah Washington, Washington speakers, speakers, anyone bureau. that's listening. Yes, thank you. Um, and then tell me about the Arthur Project. Sure. So, you know, I will avoid, for the, for the length of time we have left, I will avoid any great detail about the backstory of who Arthur was, unfortunately, which is what happened in the book as well. He got dedicated to him and it was too deep of a story to, it needs its own, he's being written into the new book. 
Um, but I had a neighbor in my building who made a very big difference in my life at some critical years and really gave me a sense of that I, well, really a sense I matter. And I do believe a lot of that fed into my sense of self that held me to a higher standard when I had to make choices that would direct my life. And that was Arthur. And so my, my point of view is if you've had something work out for you in life, it's not really success unless it, unless it creates opportunities for other people. And so I have been spending a number of years how to distill down what happened to me and create opportunities for other people. And the latest result of that is uh, the launch of a, a new nonprofit called the Arthur Project. And what we do is we use relationship-based learning to combat poverty. And we, we are redesigning the way that people think of mentoring. We are scratching the old volunteer, take a volunteer, untrained volunteer with a kid in a high-risk situation. And we are looking at an intentional transformation around the way we deliver mentoring. So it, just the way they did in daycare, it's not daycare anymore. The gold standard is uh, early education. We're transforming the way that mentoring is delivered. And I am spending my life at this stage, not only raising my beautiful children with my husband, who I love dearly and who is my best friend, but also looking at how to pick apart anything that I have to offer to make it useful for others. And I encourage anyone really who has had any good thing happen for them to take a close look at how that occurred who was involved and how you can pass it on to someone else. And where could people hear more about the Arthur Project? Yeah, sure. If you go to the arthurproject.org, I would be so grateful. Uh, find out what we're doing with youth because I think it has, it's, there's our direct service. There's our kids. There's our program. We're based in the Bronx. I went back to the Bronx where I'm from uh, to do that. But also we have aspirations to make a national impact. I do believe that People are very obsessed with outcomes for youth, understandably. Algebra, attendance, all these things. My strong felt sense is that it is the relationship. The relationship is first. And we are looking at the science of relationship between adults and children and how to distill down what makes an adult effective with youth. And my high hope is to you know, teach that across the country and offer that to anyone who cares to reach a child. And where else could people see what you're doing? Sure. Um, so I have a, a book coming up. Thank you. Uh, but it won't be out for about two years. So it's but it's it'll be called The Weight of Two Worlds, a bootstrapper's love letter to America. And it's about the takeaway. Um, I'm very moved by Martin Luther King's take on the beloved community. Um, yeah, I, he talked about this sense of neighborly love where we value one another and what are barriers to the beloved community. And I'm writing a second memoir about my journey across America in the thick of beliefs about the American dream to really show that there are things in our country that are dividing us on individual levels that are microcosms for the larger divide. And it's a call for unity in the beloved community because I believe we need one another. And also on Instagram at, are you active on Instagram and Facebook? <laughs> I am. I'm sorry to say I'm on Facebook. Absolutely. Okay. I'm on nothing Liz, else. Liz yeah. Murray, Facebook. Yeah, that's yes. that's me. So Liz Murray not... breaking night on Facebook. Okay, but I... Liz Murray breaking night. And first of all, guys, Listen to me, go get the book, go right now where you buy books on Amazon and read this book. I'm not an avid reader, I'm an avid listener, but I have read that book so many times. My Bobby, kids have so read sweet. it, My every person that worked for me has read it, editors have read it, it's really, it's, Bobby, it's, you're it's a change your life. Sweet. Thank you so much, Bobby. So I, I'm so happy to see you. Can I just say I'm really yeah. excited for you at this stage of your life to be creating a big, big what's next. Because <laughs> why yeah. not? Well, because well, because why not? And also you have this tremendous lived experience that can be made useful to other people. So once we get that, who are we not to share it? And you share it so fiercely. I'm, I'm really excited for you. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have a chance to be here today and be even like a small part of it. 
And I apologize for being the worst godmother yeah, ever. Yeah, they yeah. ever. That that means they're. I'll tell them. <laughs> yeah. She, they'll, they'll, yeah. Oh, well, will she send a Christmas present? Yes, I'm I only, will. I'm, Bobby, I'm teasing. Well, you, you. know I will. So anyways, <laughs> you know I love you, Bobby. Uh, love Thanks you for too. having me. Thanks here for today. coming. Thank you. That was my conversation with Liz Murray. Even though Liz has seen so much in her life, it's amazing to me that she's always so positive and always sees the best in every situation and has hope in the future. That's it for this episode of Long Story Short. Follow me online at Just Bobby Brown. If there's someone you want on the show, let me know there. And if you guys want to ask me a question, just go to askbobbybrown at gmail.com. Ask me any question and please tell me who else you want me to interview and what topics you want me to cover. If you really like the podcast, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really like the show, send me a few bucks. I promise to send it to charity. And that's a wrap for Long Story Short. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown, a Gallery Media Group production.